Hello, and welcome to What Do You Reckon? I'm Mike Advocate. And I'm Al Politico. And we're back. From a bit of a hiatus. Yeah, we've, we, been, we've been off. We've just about recovered from the beasts from the East, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, I think what everyone I think everyone in Britain feared for their lives I at mean, least I, once. I was absolutely petrified every morning. I'd walk to this tube station and I'd worry that the district line wasn't going to come. <laughs> it was absolutely toe-curlingly terrifying. I know, and it's so unu- so unusual that, isn't it, to worry about the district line? It's very unusual to worry about the district line not coming in the morning. Famously, famously a very reliable line. The most reliable in London. What annoys me so much about that is that they closed down half the line at one, you know, so I couldn't get home very easily, uh, uh, you know, pretty much a day before that storm. And they said, oh, we're doing planned engineering works. And then it snowed and it was closed again. It's like, well, you should have planned more. Well, exactly. Should have engineered more. And also, it always always struck me as odd when they'd say planned engineering works. Why don't they just call them engineering works? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. You know, there's no ad hoc engineering works. There's no, like, off the cuff. Exactly. Someone (laughs) makes a plan somewhere down the line, so just call them engineering works, because that's what they are. But I thought the media response to the Beast from the East, I mean, even calling it the Beast from the East, was very overdramatic, I thought. I remember I saw this one... It's one front page, I think it was from the Metro, which I've actually put up on my, on my Instagram. And it was this picture of just a, cl- a dark cloud. And, you know, in this white writing, it had the beast from the east. And I just thought, those are just some dark clouds. Mm. See, do you notice the little sly plug for uh, for the Instagram there? A little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't told you my Instagram name. It's not quite a plug. No, that's true. Perhaps I'll tell you that later if you're lucky enough. Yeah, well, but enough enough of the beast from the east. Um, I mean, no, I don't think anyone wants to relive that horrific experience. It was toe-curlingly terrifying, Mikey. <laughs> I'd never want to speak of it again. Yeah, I mean, now we'll turn to something far less worrying and far less, uh, you know, politically dangerous, you know, far less international recognition, and that's the spies in Salisbury. So still kind of east. There are some beasts <laughs> from the east. The real, the real beasts from the and east. Savaging um, the West Country. Yeah, I, had a, I have a friend actually from Salisbury and I um, saw them sort of the weekend afterwards. And mm. They were saying it's like our tourism's really shot up. <laughs> Let's put Salisbury on the map. Um, so what we're really going to be sort of debating today is what, what, you know, what should the, how should the government have responded to these events and what our take on them is. So first, I'm going to start by giving you a little recap and some of my thoughts, and then and now I'm going to jump in. Um, and it's a little bit different today, so feel feel free out to jump in whenever, as ever, Mike. So basically, as we all know, uh, at the beginning of March on the fourth, um, a nerve agent was used against a former Russian spy, name of Sergei Skripal. Uh, Skripal. Skripal. Skripal, 66, and his 33-year-old daughter, Yulia, in Salisbury. Um, so he was a retired Russian military intelligence officer who was convicted, convicted of passing identities of Russian intelligence agents working undercover in Europe to the UK's secret intelligence service, MI6. Um, of course, that was quite a long time ago, um, and he was jailed for 13 years uh, by Russia in 2006, and he's been living in the UK since his release, basically. So immediately after this chemical attack, which left the two of them comatose on a bench and also has hospitalised the first responding police officer, um, 
there's been obviously quite a lot of hoo-ha, as I'm sure any of you listening will have noticed. Um, so it all began on the, the day that it happened, Theresa May demanding some response or explanation by the Russian government by the end of the day. And she didn't really get to her mind a satisfactory response. So she's gone on to say that the chemical weapons used in the attack have been identified as part of a group of merge agents developed by Russia known as Novichok. Um, and these nerve agents were developed in Russia um, in the 1970s and 1980s. Of course, at the time, we shouldn't really call it Russia, it was the Soviet Union. Um, and it's one of these interesting things where, of course, we're all sort of wrapped, it's, it's a bit like we're back in the Cold War suddenly. Um, obviously, Russia and the USSR were the big bad wolf for a very long time. It was always a big fear they're going to attack us um, or attack somebody. And then 1990 rolls around and it all, it all seems to go away. And it's like, well, shouldn't we be welcoming Russia back into the fold? And here we are, 2018. And it's not really worked out like that. So the government has requested answer from the Russians, as I said. Um, and it's, they've been accused that their responses have been sarcastic, full of contempt and defiance. Um, and, she's, and Theresa May has told MPs the only conclusion to be drawn was that the Russians were culpable for the attempted murders and threatening the public safety of Britons in Salisbury. And uh, Albie, what, what were your, sorry, Al Politico, my apologies, what were your reactions to the attack when you first heard about it? I mean, first of all, when I hear the word Russia, I can't help but switch off a little bit um, for a number of reasons, but we'll get to those. But, but I think that the, I think that the government's response to this has been absolutely right. I mean, you, you, you speak about Theresa May's accusations towards Russia as if they were made um, based on absolutely nothing. Yeah. And in the absence of evidence, which is true, if you go on the actions of the Russian state and they were given a time period and a time to respond to what the Prime Minister had said and the accusations that the Prime Minister had made of midnight on whatever day it was last week. Yeah. And Theresa May had said previously to that, if there was no response, they would not be able to come to any other conclusion other than the fact that Russia had been involved. And then come midnight on, on that day, they didn't respond, and that is a conclusion that the Prime Minister made. Mm. So if we're going on actions of what happened after the alleged attack, then I think, I think that the, the, the government's response is absolutely just. And that response, just for, for clarity, was a series of sanctions, which included the expulsion of 23 diplomats, who must be gone within a week, Ministers in the royal family will not attend the FIFA World Cup in Russia later this year. The Russian state asserts assets sorry, will be frozen if there's evidence that they were used in weapons against UK nationals and residents. There's checks on private flights, customs and freights, which will be increased. All planned high-level contacts between the UK and Russia will be suspended. The retraction, uh, the retraction of the state invitation to Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. And now the Russians... Um, have responded themselves and they've expelled 23 British diplomats who've been given one week to leave Moscow. They've closed the British consulate in St. Petersburg and they've ended the activities of the British Council, which promotes cultural ties with the UK and Russia and language learning. Um, and just going back to the evidence as well, I think the kind of the, obviously there's an investigation from our own police um, and counter-terrorism and all the sort of government agencies, which is thought to maybe take about two months, and that's more concerned with how the nerve agent was used. 
Um, perhaps a bit more importantly, experts from the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, arrived in the UK on the 19th of March to test samples of the chemicals. The results expected a minimum of two weeks. Of course, the interesting thing with this, though, is that this apparently this nerve agent was developed to be undetectable and used precisely so that it would be it wouldn't be able to connect it back to one um, state actor, which is apparently the position in the 1980s. Whether that still holds true today, I don't know. Well, I mean, if only one country developed it, then there's only really one way you can point the blame, and whether or not that was carried out by, you know the Russian state directly or by the Russian mafia, as Corbyn sort of wants to allude to, yeah. or by some other Russian person, at some point down the supply chain of this nerve agent, Russia was involved and will be responsible for however that nerve agent got into the hands of the wrong people, if it was even the wrong people. So, yes. Yeah, so I, I think th- that's the point. So I think, Al, what, you know, you're definitely echoing this joint statement that was made by the France, Germany, the US and the UK, which said that Russian involvement was the only plausible explanation. Um, and I fear that both you and these, the France, Germany and the United States and ourselves, are perhaps lacking a little bit of, a bit of uh, imagination. The only plausible explanation. I mean, if you develop a ton of chemical nerve agent, um, and then your you know your whole country's sort of government system falls apart in a, you know in a couple of months, and you've got this, this new government. I mean, we're now thirty years later, basically. Is it really that unbelievable that you know some of this nerve agent might be obtained by, by you know other other actors in the prece- in the preceding thirty years? Yes, but on the other side, is it really unbelievable that a country which has done nothing but provoke and attack the West for well, certainly our entire lifetimes, whether or not that's been overtly during the Cold War or covertly more recently with this attack and with Litvinenko earlier uh, in the millennium. You know, this is not a country which has been our friend by any stretch of the imagination. You know, this is a country which is using cyber attacks to attack us, is, has used poison attacks against people in this country in the past and has done again more recently, the government thinks. So, I mean, it's all well and good to say to say something like, you know, lacking imagination. Well, we don't have to imagine that the Russian government would do something like this. It's already happened. So this idea that Russia's been our friend since the early 1990s, it's just not true. No. It's just all been much more submarine. I agree. They're, um, they're certainly not our friends. They haven't been our friends since the Cold War. But, but why is that, really? It, I mean... I don't think we're innocent actors in this, and I don't mean just particularly this nerve agent attack. Um, I mean more our relations between Russia in the last 30 years. Now, they're not a communist dictatorship anymore. Sure, they're not the, you know, they're run by a tyrant, but then so is Saudi Arabia. If you want, you know, if you apply the standard to Russia, then a lot of our allies, perhaps even China, don't really make all that much sense. Um, we, if I mean, if you took in a purely ethical position, um, they're also, it's not as if we have some border dispute with Russia, like other countries in Europe potentially do, and we only trade with them in, in gas, essentially. Why is it that they have to be this big bad wolf? And also, our own spying agencies, our own uh, attempts to influence their elections are also acknowledged. So it's not as if so it's not as if we're innocent actors, and and NATO still exists, so effectively to pre- prevent some kind of Russian invasion, which was set up to surely combat the USSR, which no longer exists. 
But then you're acting as if Russia hasn't invaded Europe in the past 10 years. It has. Ukraine, Crimea. You know, that's why these organisations still exist, because the threat is still very real. Yes, but, the, but of course, there are quite a lot of Russians in Ukraine, and it's a little bit more complicated than them invading a foreign country. Ukraine has been part of Russia for many years and for a very long time. Where, what the border of Russia is today is not what it's been historically. And I'm not just talking about the USSR. Um, and I think it's it's a it's an interesting thing, obviously, from a country that has is you know just in an is just an island with very clear borders and a you know the sea surrounding it. We perhaps don't quite appreciate the perspective of so a country like Russia, who seems to get invaded every couple of generations and see millions of its people killed because it has this huge border that you know anyone can invade it. And let's you know from their perspective. The EU has grown quite a, a lot in the direction of the east, and the Russians have only, you know, been losing their border over the last, you know, thirty or so years. So they might say, "Well, we're not the one making aggressive moves into other people's territories." That's the EU. I wouldn't say the eastern expansion of the European Union has been an aggressive expansion, in in the way that you're describing. You make it sound like there's been some kind of, you know, seventeenth-century skirmish, just sort of. You know, take more of Eastern Europe. That's just not what's that's not what's happened. A trading bloc has gotten bigger, and it's become a bit more of a political union in the past fifteen years. That's what's happened. I don't think that is something to provoke any nation. Um, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Russian history. As I said, mm. Russia is really a subject that just makes me switch off mm. for a number of reasons. But I think you, the most interesting point that you've actually raised is why there is this kind of there's certainly an attitude um, that Westerners have towards Russia and all things Russian. And if you transpose that attitude with other countries that act, behave in similar ways, China, Saudi Arabia to a lesser extent, it just doesn't really exist. You know, when, um, what is the Saudi prince called again? Bin Salman? Oh, it's, it's just changed, hasn't it? It's just changed. Anyway, Salaman, he, he, Salaman. When Salaman was in London, I think it was just two weeks ago, I mean, you only really heard sort of the fringes of maybe the political parties, maybe sort of people in student politics getting a bit annoyed about it. Whereas, you know, with this whole Putin thing, I mean, everyone's furious. But ultimately, mm. if you look at who's worse, this Bin Salman man or Saudi Arabia in general and Russia and how they treat people globally, and Yemen compared to Crimea, for example, you know, mm. the the reaction just isn't the same. Mm. China and Tibet, you know, the way that China sort of is in general, um, you know, uh, Xi Jinping, Xi Jin, oh, whatever his name is, Jinping. Well, I think, um, I think, I becoming, think, you know, could, could lead for his entire life. And there's just not been a response to that, which has been proportionate um, compared to this response to this entire Russia well, quite. situation. Well, quite. And um, I hate to be, uh, hate to be cynical, um, but of course, our trading relationship with Russia, as I mentioned, is, is effectively limited to, to you know, some gas trading, which is not insignificant. But of course, our trading relationships with Saudi Arabia and China and are, are far more significant. Um, I mean, I, I believe it's been sort of going about in the uh, press a bit recently about how the, the Saudi National Oil Corporation is considering doing a listing either in the London or New York Stock Exchange mm -hmm. of sort of 5% of its assets. The company itself is the most valuable company in the world, considered to be worth between two trillion and ten trillion dollars. Um, and of course, 
everyone's bending over backwards or doing all they can to get them to come do their listing in your country of 5% of this one company. Now, Russian doesn't, Russia doesn't really have anything of like, of, you know, of equivalent. Sure, they have their, you know, their rich oligarchs. But ultimately, from an economic perspective, um, these other relationships seem to matter a lot more. So it, I, I can't help but feel a little bit uh, frustrated when I see um, the government, of course, this attack has happened on British soil, which is, you know, obviously they have to react in some way. But the the pillaring of sort of Jeremy Corbyn for suggesting it might be something else and suggesting that he's unpatriotic for doing it. And how could you possibly be in bed with these horrific Russians as if we don't have questionable relationships? I just think it's a bit ridiculous. But I think it, it, it is one thing to bring up China, Saudi Arabia and their sort of less than perfect uh, dealings in their own country and dealings with other countries. It's another thing entirely to discuss the relationship with Russia in the context of what the relationship has been and what has happened. You know, China hasn't been killing, sp killing, killing spies on British soil, neither has Saudi Arabia. That just hasn't happened. Mm. You know, I think the nature of what's happened is just is completely different. So I think there's a limit to how far that argument goes. I think well, before this happened, perhaps there was maybe more of an argument that you could have to compare those two to compare these three countries in a more sort of on level playing field. But I do think Russia is a lot more provocative and has been a lot more provocative than China or Saudi Arabia to the United Kingdom. Although people might say that is there not in a similar way that you might say, well, because um, the origins of the nerve agent or, or perhaps the money or the organisation that funded this attack must have been in Russia at some point or be in Russia in, in some respect, that therefore the Russian government has culpability. Couldn't we extend similar things to uh, the funding of terrorism, for example, in, in different countries? I mean, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran and the sort of Sunni-Shiite um, dispute that goes on in the Middle East they fund extremist groups and probably those, well, quite likely those extremist groups then fund or indoctrinate people to commit, you know, the series of terrorist attacks that have happened in you know, United States or in, the, or in, in Europe and the West in general. Then you couldn't, couldn't you say, well, aha, that, you know, these countries are also culpable for those attacks. I think, I think there's something in that argument, but I do still think the situations are slightly different. Perhaps the Arabs know how to cover up their supply chains a bit better than the Russians. I don't know. But I do think that there is a difference between what has been uh, very obviously in the past, in the case of Litvinenko, state-sanctioned attacks on British soil and it happening again, and then the UK jumping to what is a plausible conclusion, judging what's happened in the past, and sort of like speculating about Saudi Arabia and Iran funding terrorism. And actually, there's not really any proof of that not as concrete as what's happened with Litvinenko, or indeed as concrete as this. Okay, let me come at this from another angle. Um, I've heard it said that the only way that Putin and his entourage maintains power in Russia is through this projection of sort of international strength, this idea that he's some kind of puppet master, and that the Western media like to play into that because he's a very uh, useful baddie at this time. But actually what they're doing is they're feeding into his his ability to retain power. I mean, he recently had elections and won something like 70% of the vote. Um, you know, and, and some people saying 
he's never going to leave. But he's residing over a country which has, which was of course once the preeminent superpower in the world, um, and now has an economy about the same size as Italy. Um, they have a massive AIDS epidemic, worse than some countries in Africa. Um, and recently, when he sent support to Syria and his boat fa and the sort of Russian ship famously came through the British tra Channel, people might have noticed there was a lot of black smoke coming out of it. That's because they still have wood-powered battleships. This is not a country that should be regarded as having any significant ability to affect, um, you know, these other these other Western countries. It's it's not a powerful country. It would never attack um, one of the Western powers. It would never. It's just Northern European powers. It's just not in their interest because they couldn't fund it. Um, and if we just stop feeding the fire of this narrative that. Putin, some um, puppet master who controls who controls all, then he'll he'll lose, start to lose elections, start to lose popularity in Russia itself. So we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. So you're saying there should have been no response whatsoever? Well, to be honest, that well, I'm, uh, I don't know quite what I'm saying, but actually, I thought it was interesting the response itself. It's not really much of a response, is it? I mean, these sanctions. Oh, we're not going to send the royal family to the to the World Cup. I mean, who cares? Do you know what I mean? You know, let's. I mean, no, I do agree, and then I mean, I, I agree, but I think it's a statement to say, you know, twenty-three of your diplomats are being, you know, expelled. That's the largest number of diplomats since the Cold War. That is a that's a massive statement. I mean, you can forget about the royal family going to the World Cup, but actually, maybe we shouldn't forget about it because I think a lot of people do expect to see a British royal at the World Cup. It is a tradition which has been going on for decades and they're probably the most famous family in the world. You know, perhaps not to us and perhaps not to Russia, but certainly to other countries. If we're looking at the Commonwealth, for example, not having a, a member of the British royal family at the, um, at, at the World Cup, that's, that's, that's quite a statement. I suppose. Um, but anyway, now, I think maybe I am saying that the response should have been very little or completely just saying, well, we're not going to accuse anyone or any country until we have further evidence. Mm. We're conducting a full inquiry. Um, we're obviously concerned that there's a, you know, there's a link to a Russian source, but we're sure that uh, the Russians, as our, as our allies, would, would, you know, would not kill a man they'd formerly imprisoned and who had you know, really nothing against them at that time. And then perhaps that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be fueling any fire. It's hard to know. Because we've just reacted so, um, you know, so quickly and so um, publicly um, that we've immediately, um, you know, made re relations colder, and we don't know necessarily what would have happened. And it, we're sort of sitting here going, "Oh, the Russians are acting very defensive," but it's quite possible that they didn't have anything to do with this. In which case, how should they be acting? Well, I think that's a difficult question. I am personally of the opinion that if the Russians had nothing to do with it at all, they would have responded to Theresa May within the limits that she had given them. And, you know, this whole situation would have played out completely differently. The simple fact of the matter is that's not what happened. And this is how things were transpired. If it was nothing to do with the Russians, if, you know, they're all innocent as you are, um, as you are proposing, then why didn't they get back to Theresa May within the time limits that she suggested? But they can't get back with her with an explanation if they can't explain what happened. If they don't really know who, how anyone got the nerve agent. They didn't even acknowledge it. 
Well, I think they asked for further evidence, didn't they? Well, they've since they've since said they want further evidence. They need they need to see some proof given the accusations. Well, so if you're saying if they'd gone back and said, "Look, we didn't have anything to do with this. Um, someone must have raided our uh, our nerve agent thirty years ago and then used it," we're very sorry that that was allowed to happen. You think there would have been no response from us? I think the response would have been different. Okay. Well, we'll never know. We will never know. We'll never know. Will. But this is the thing: is this is why I wonder that it's that they're all just. If something, it's a bit, it's a bit like, and I, I hesitate to make this comparison, but it's a little bit like when there's a terrorist attack and ISIS go, oh, we did that, or that was us. It all just projects this idea that they're sort of, they're in control of all these things, and they're this really, they're this organisation that mastermind. I mean, it's almost like their foreign policy is based around the idea that look, no one really likes us anyway. So if someone sort of accuses us of being sort of big bad spies, we'll just sort of go, well, maybe we are. And then that will make us look like we're really powerful. Perhaps. But again, I guess we'll never know. But, but the point is, is that I don't think the response of the Russian state to the accusations which were made from our Prime Minister um, were good enough. And I think that's why we've ended up in the situation that we're in. Mm. Another interesting element of all of this has been the response from, uh, you might have heard of him, Mr Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. who's sort of come along a, a slightly more along the lines of what I've been saying, uh, at least to the extent that he's going, well, things point towards Russia, but I don't think we should rule out that it's a minute, it's a, you know, some kind of Russian mafia. And I think really at question time on the day, he sort of, when they were sort of, everyone was going, you know, this must have been Russia, we've got to respond. He was going, well, we should be waiting for evidence. Um, and he's really being uh, pilloried for it. Um, and it's an interesting thing, at a time where he seemed to be building quite a lot of momentum, um, if this sort of, you know, either some kind of latent Russian connection or Russian sympathy, or perhaps a slightly different and, and you know, out of, very out of step with perhaps the modern political view of foreign policy, um, which is, you know, very hands off, um, what that will do for his career and his uh, aspirations to be leader of the country. What do you mean? Well, I just mean, it seems like, is you know sort of all the Labour backbenchers are very against what he said. Even John McDonald has disagreed with him. You know, I mean, I'm sure it's it's always been said ad nauseum that sort of could this be the end of, for Jeremy Corbyn? But has this been quite a uh, uh, I don't know a very a, maybe not fatal misstep, but a very a very poor one? Well, I guess we'll see. I think I guess from from what I understand and from what I saw at the Prime Minister's questions. I guess what I didn't like is that is is that this this awful thing which has happened, where two people that are living in the UK, uh, three in fact, one of which is a citizen, have been in hospital because of whatever this attack has been, whoever it was per- perpetrated by, and it's being used as some kind of particle, party political um, fodder by the leader of the opposition. I just thought it was really inappropriate and tasteless. And I think for that, a lot of people, rightly so, lost respect for Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I certainly, he went down even lower in my books than he already was, which I didn't know was possible. Mm. But he, he certainly did. And I just sort of felt that his response was almost for the sake of it. Interesting. Um, I feel like it's more a consistent thing from him 
in terms of his responses to um, the gearing up for military intervention in Iraq, Syria, and Libya. Um, say what you like about him, he's he's been non-interventionist through his sort of career, um, and I suppose I don't I don't have so much of a problem with that really, um, especially in a situation where I mean Russia does have nuclear capabilities. You don't really want to be um, starting a a conflict with them. I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to get into. I mean, if our response to this had been some kind of uh, invasion or putting troops on the border or something, that would be really dangerous for not just us but the whole world because we both have nuclear capabilities. There's never been a hot war between two powers with nuclear weapons before. I'm not saying that's going to happen, um, but he's clearly very. Um, very anti any kind of, um, you know, I suppose any sort of foreign policy where you might potentially, um, or just any sort of military, any sort of hostile foreign policy, it seems he's very against. Um, so we should just Apart from maybe to Israel, I suppose. <laughs> so we should just accept hostile foreign policy from other foreign powers, but have no response ourselves. I think that's just ridiculous. But then again, I mean, I think I, I worry at times that um, we haven't learned our lessons from Iraq, from Syria and from Libya. Well, from Iraq and from Syria, um, I mean, I think people are, a lot of people say they were sort of against the Iraq war now, even though they weren't at the time. I mean, we were a bit too young for it, really. But for Libya, I really think that Libya was, was a big mistake, taking what was a relatively um, stable re uh, country for that region and turning it really into a very, very unstable region and causing and contributing massively to a migrant crisis. Um, I really think that was quite a big mistake. And of course, at the time, it's, you know, this emotions flare and it, it does become this thing of, are you really a patriot or do you really back your country if you, uh, if you sort of allow these things to happen uh, or if you sort of don't get on the bandwagon of we have to do something? Uh, and I do think it's a, a, a legitimate concern and when, although he might have gone down in your books, he's maybe gone a little bit up in mine. Um, and yeah, I, I, but I think it's very interesting that if he does um, lose a lot of popularity over this, it will be quite an interesting thing for him to lose popularity on. That's I mean, that, that's your opinion. I, I, <laughs> I, can, I can completely, I see where you're coming from, but I don't think, I mean, had... Had ha, had it transpired in a way that he sort of had come up with his view of what happened later on, and it didn't sort of seem like he was just doing it for the sake of it. I mean, in that prime minister's questions, that's the sort of first response to the entire thing. Mm. He he just sort of seemed, and it, the response from the Conservative Party when he said what he did was just it was like utter bewilderment. It was sort of like, what are you seriously trying to get some you know political capital? from this awful event which has happened in our country. And that's very much the view that I've had, but I haven't really followed it since then. Um, like, as I said, Russia's not really, not that you can tell from me speaking about it for almost half an hour now, but um, it's not really a part of the world which particularly interests me. And um, I just sort of switch off. Well, let's explore that a little bit. Um, because of course it is a country that's often in the news and perhaps the news is almost forced upon us a little bit about mm. Russia. But it, it doesn't really interest you so much. And why is that? Um, I guess because I am very aware that Russia, uh, um, Russians in general, in Russia, apart from in perhaps St. Petersburg 
or so I'm told I've never actually been, are quite a racist nation, quite a homophobic nation, given what's been happening in Chechnya. And for those reasons, I just I just sort of switch off. I sort of remember when I heard that Russia got the World Cup, and I just remember thinking over the UK, and I just thought, what? I mean, perhaps that would be an interesting thing mm. to explore. But um, Well, there was almost certainly corruption, well, given absolutely. what's come out about FIFA. Absolutely. But it just it just seems to me um, this, this, this country, which on the one hand, we're going to give them the World Cup, but on the other hand, we're going to slam them for their human rights record and for things like this that they're carrying on doing to, carrying on doing to us. There's no sort of cohesion in the Western response to Russia. It's sort of like every couple of years, things like this happen. And then in the next couple of years, we'll give them the World Cup. And I think that is what sort of makes me switch off because no one seems to have made their mind up about that. Well, it's an interesting thing, is it? I think it slightly speaks to these international sporting bodies. And they often have a situation where um, every country gets one vote. And then what that means is that sometimes quite bizarre countries win because the bigger countries sort of sort of buy them and say, we'll give you a really big kickback if like, you know, mm-hmm. if you vote for us. And um, obviously the other countries, you know, like the more established countries are maybe a France, maybe Britain, they wouldn't do that. Um, it is, it is this very, it is going to be a very interesting World Cup. Mm. I mean, for a long time, I mean, since the, since the Euros, when, um, uh, I mean, I saw a lot of stuff coming out about how these Russian fans had been training uh, effectively to sort of fight the, the English hooligans, um, which I don't know if they've really been following mm-hmm. English national football for, for a long time now, but the English sort of hooligan doesn't really quite exist no. in the same way. It do, certainly not for the national team. It's, a, it's slightly more of a family thing. Um, and I feel like they kind of want everyone to come there. And it's less about playing football. And it's more about them beating up everyone else's fans. Mm. And, it, and it could be quite a, a hot... I mean, given the, the, the state of tensions at the moment, we're going to have a World Cup later this year, um, just a couple of months, and things could not really be frostier between the United States and Western Europe. Um, and I don't know who they're drawn with or who they're going to be playing um, right now, but I imagine that it's going to be a pretty um, feisty affair. And if something could happen... I know, mean, I completely agree. It is going to be very interesting to see what happens when all of these Western football fans go over to Russia given everything that's happened recently, and just this general dislike, I think, of Russia in the West at the moment for various events that have happened since 2010. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. I guess we'll find out later this year. Um, have you seen that some uh, have been calling for... A, well, a lot of sports writers I read have been saying that the English football team should boycott it. What do you think about that? Um, I mean... It's a difficult one, I think. Um, Obviously, you know, the English football team is a sense of pride for millions of English people across the country. And, you know, the World Cup comes once every four years and it brings so much joy to people's lives in these difficult times for a lot of people, you know, when they're suffering from wage squeezes, when they're suffering from, you know, the economy not doing as well as it has been in the past. when they're suffering with the immediate effects of Brexit. Uh, the the World Cup, England playing in the World Cup and maybe doing mediocre to well, is a sense oh God, of joy I... to a lot of people. Oh. 
Big so, dreams um, we have here. So, <laughs> you know, do I think they should boycott 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 the um the World Cup? Maybe like being a Puritan, being a purist. Yes, I think they should, like on a moral uh, perspective. But if we actually weigh up what is morally right with you know sort of the, our view as a country and what is best for our people and a sense of morale of the nation. I think they should absolutely go, and I think they should try as hard as they can to make sure they get further than Russia does. Yeah, um, and the, well, the thing is, if you had to, bo- if you boycott it on a purely moral stance, you probably have to boycott Qatar a as lot. well. Exactly. And exactly. then, then is then is two World Cups gone just mm. like that? And I mean, <laughs> that would just be. Ter- I mean, I'm not a football fan, but I, I'm excited about England playing in the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's just. I mean, I don't know how much you follow it, but just the loss to Iceland um, was so, like... I mean, it can't be worse than that. And then I said that, but I think I said that at the World Cup two years before, and we got knocked out by Costa Rica. And I was like, well, it can't be worse than that. But it was. And so I'm just kind of interested to see if England can somehow be worse than losing to Iceland. Mm. I mean, in a way, that would almost be amazing. Maybe if they got, maybe if they lost to Russia 8-0, and all our fans got beaten up, Maybe that would be worse. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, Anything that. else would be a success. I'd like to aim low in my expectations for the England football team. Okay, well, let's see. <laughs> let's see. Oh, and just before we go, um, of course, the other big news from today uh, has been that the Brexit transition deal um, has effectively been agreed. Um, and some quite interesting and exciting things are coming out of that. Um, although there's been a bit of um, a bit of sort of I don't know, some, some, some sort of diehard Brexiteers saying that it's not good enough. Why even have it a transition? That's kind of besides the point now because we are in going through this longer transition. I think the exciting thing for me mainly is that we now get to start tra- signing some trade deals. I think that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly somewhat exciting, but how easy it will be to sign trade deals in the current climate of trade rules, I think... It's going to be interesting. And I think a lot of these expectations maybe that a lot of people maybe had of Brexit or the trade deals that we could strike maybe aren't going to be met in the immediate future. Perhaps in the longer term when things change, yeah, sure. It might, there might be some benefits of, of, of being able to sign our own trade deals. And, and there will be. But I think in the immediate future after Brexit happens, this time next year when we're thinking about signing these new trade deals, it's think, I think it's going to be tougher than a lot of people letting on. Well, I think it's quite exciting in the sense that um, I have heard it from an inside source that some of these deals, like inside for example source. a trade deal, like for example a trade deal with a Korea, with Korea, South Korea, is basically agreed, the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> agreed fully in principle it's all just done in paper, and as soon as we're allowed to do it, it'll basically be signed. Um, whether that's true or not, who knows? But it would be quite interesting if we could get to a position where we've maybe got three or four trade deals signed in the next year or so. That would really put a, that would really kind of change the mood of it, I think, and it would be an interesting thing to contemplate. Well, of course, but it's not necessarily whether or not we'll get trade deals signed. I'm sure that we will. It's what these trade deals will contain, which is what's really going to be interesting. And whether or not it's going to be better than the trade deals that the EU signs with the same countries. Mm. But of course, they all definitely take a bit. Well, they definitely do take a long time. And if we could show we could do them quickly, that might be quite good in itself. And one final thing, which we were talking about 
um, off the pod, which I just think is so hilarious, is that um, it's you know the sort of as I say, these sort of diehard Brexiteers are quite angry about the fact we've got this two years, and especially that you know we have to stay with the common fisheries policy for the next two years, uh, and then we'll just be involved in a consulting basis. So the fishermen won't get back their waters until 2020, which will be good when we get it. I really think that I'm really hopeful that industry takes off um, afterwards. But so some of the Scottish Conservative MPs have been going, this is quite bad. And that's fair enough. That's they've, they've often consistently said that. However, Nicola Sturgeon jumping on the bandwagon, going, the Tories have betrayed the Scots again. We won't get back our fishing waters. It's like, excuse me, Sturgeon. Your name may be a fish, but you, <laughs> but you have not been pro this at all. It's just so ridiculous. And now that is some political points, David. It's it just is. so it, blatant. It is. I mean, Nicola, she comes around every couple of months and says something ridiculous. I actually get a massive spot on the side of my face <laughs> every couple of months. And it's really big and it's really red and it's really loud. And it's there for about a week and it's really painful. And everyone can see it. And then it goes away and everyone forgets it was ever there. I actually named her Nicola. The Sturgeon Sport. Because it just reminds me of Nicola Sturgeon. Because that's just what she does. She just says something ridiculous, like, let's hold another referendum. You know, oh, the Conservatives have betrayed the Scottish again. And it's just sort of like, crying out loud. Oh, no. Oh, no. Just, just, just say something, <laughs> you know, cohesive for once, which isn't, you know, Scottish nationalism. Quite right. And on that note, we will see you next time.